Hey, it's Mark. Do you ever wonder how creators make their stuff better, just more tailored to what it is you're looking for? I'll tell you one way that's really important to me. It's the No Such Thing podcast listener survey. I know too little about who's listening to the show. I know people are listening. I have lots of analytics that show me about the downloads. Um, They just don't tell me enough about who you are. So if there's any favor you could do to the show to help us continue to produce the kind of commercial-free episodes like the one you're about to hear, go to nosuchthingpodcast.org. You can click on the About tab to get a link. You can also go to facebook.com slash no such thing podcast, obviously like the page and then fill out the survey. It'll take you less than six minutes. Here's the show. If you're a learning designer and an educator in a school, maybe you develop curriculum. You might even be a researcher yourself. You should have research heroes. These would be people out there whose ideas work well with your own vision for what learning should look and feel like. Maybe it's someone or a group of someones who've opened your mind to possibilities you hadn't considered. Maybe they've confirmed things in your practice you've had a hypothesis about for years, but hadn't had a chance to test outside of your own bubble. Most researchers I know have practitioner heroes, the folks pushing their field closer to the things that learners need from them. One's who are thinking big about what matters. One of mine for a long time now is Mimi Ito. You may know her from work she's published like hanging out, messing around, geeking out, kids living and learning with new media. Check out the show notes for a link and to check out the many contributors who made that important work. I've been a fanboy of Dr. Ito's for a long time, which is why when I began thinking about who I wanted to check in with as I near No Such Thing podcast's 100th episode, she sprang to mind immediately. Our conversation didn't disappoint. As I learned more about how her life growing up between cultures contributes to where she focuses her energies now, we talk about research practice partnership and connected camps a long-time passion project that, as you can imagine, this year has blown up. Mimi Ito is one of two cultural anthropologists who I associate most strongly with the digital lives of young people. The other is Michael Wesch, who you may know from his widely shared lecture, An Anthropological Introduction to YouTube, now more than a decade old, but about as relevant today as it ever was. You can check out that as well from a link in the notes. From her bio, Dr. Mimi Ito is a cultural anthropologist, learning scientist, entrepreneur, and advocate for connected learning. Learning that is equity-oriented, centered on youth interest, and socially connected. Her work decodes digital youth culture for parents and educators, offering ways to tap interests and digital media to fuel learning that is engaging, relevant, and socially connected. She's the director of the Connected Learning Lab and professor in residence at John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Chair in Digital Media and Learning at the University of California, Irvine. She is also co-founder of Connected Camps, a nonprofit providing online learning experiences for kids in all walks of life. Her co-authored books, in addition to hanging out, messing around, and geeking out, include Affinity Online, How Connection and Shared Interests Fuel Learning, and The Reports, 
from good intentions to real outcomes, equity by design and learning technologies, and the Connected Learning Research Network, reflections on a decade of engaged scholarship. It's a lot of work. I'm really grateful to Mimi for spending time with me amidst all of the chaos of our current reality. Making some time for you through me between her role at a UC Irvine and paddling out to catch good surf, which is where she finds sanctuary from it all. Picture blown up photos of her kids catching incredible waves hanging on her office wall behind her as we talk. Enjoy it. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Mimi, first of all, thank you for doing this. I'm really excited we have a chance uh, to record some conversation. I, um, I, I hope we know each other well enough to for you to know that I don't. I'm I'm a pretty sincere person, and and uh, at least I try to be. And um, you are one of those people who I was so excited um, to get to do the show, in part because I've never had a conversation uh, between us that wasn't meaningful to me that I didn't I wasn't thinking about afterwards. And I feel like those are always as I. Um, get a little older and I think about who surrounds me in my life and my work. And uh, it, it feels like such a good, um, a good part of the rubric for who you have around you, you know, if, if your conversation sort of last. Um, so thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mark. I definitely feel like we've been fellow travelers in this very interesting journey around technology and learning and it, equity and everything else. It's so true. One of the things I've been dying to ask you um, in this, you know, COVID moment, you've been doing work around young people and uh, digital environments for a long time. And what I'm most curious about, because I don't, I think that people, I can only imagine, make the mistake of coming to you to ask questions about uh, to, to sort of like separate signal from noise on what's happening with young people in all of these digital environments because they're all so different. And as a cultural anthropologist, um, I would imagine, not to put words in your mouth, but it feels like your your work over time has really been about um, narrowing what's unique about those environments, not necessarily generalizing across um, this vat, what has now become such a ubiquitous sort of digital landscape that um, kids traverse. So, I, so if you had one thing you wish people would realize about digital environments and young people, the relationship uh, between those two things that you've learned over time, what would you point to that feels relevant in this COVID or, or even looking forward to the post-COVID reality? Like, what are the most relevant things that you wish you could just sort of remind people? It's an interesting question. I think you're right that I've been observing how teens, kids adopt digital technologies, whatever's new at the time for, you know, almost two decades now. And the thing that's been quite consistent throughout that is this generation gap in perception between grownups and adults, not necessarily a gap in perception about what's valuable about digital technology and connection, social media, games, whatever it might be, but the gap in how much adults devalue, stigmatize, and pass judgment when it's kids using the technology. So I think that 
as the even as the technology changes and now grown-ups are on Twitter and Facebook and have an experiential basis for using FaceTime to connect with each other, um, even despite that, there's still this very resilient belief that when teens and kids use technology, it's um, trivial, unimportant, and a negative influence on their life overall. And that is the kind of cultural divide that I've been trying <laughs> for many, many years now to convince adults that just like they use technology as a lifeline to stay in touch with their aging parents or to do work, young people also see these technologies as lifelines to social connection, emotional support, to learning, to work, everything they care about. The personalization that has been at the top of everybody's mind in the context of education certainly relates in this context of um, what things are engaging young people digitally as well, right? And, and um it feels in part like what's important about this moment, too, is that just the question like I do have I have three kids of school age and um, it is not universal that young people there's nothing universal about uh, what fires my kids up in terms of uh, what environments they gravitate to. Um, and I'm constantly trying to make smart decisions about uh, what in in parent speak is often sort of reduced to screen time. But I wonder what you're noticing about the conversation related to COVID right now and whether there are insights about, let's call it screen time for, for the moment, that feel valid and, and worth watching and then ones that you feel like you wish would go away because they're sort of diluting um, what's interesting about this moment. Yeah, I think COVID has really created a new opening for the conversation that adds a little bit more nuance to that whole term screen time, which itself is just the term itself is so problematic because it assumes that the important variable is whether it's on a screen or not, mm. not what the nature of the activity is. So I think that what's happened during COVID is that uh, parents have direct visibility into uh, both what kids are doing in terms of their stuff for fun, but also the stuff they're doing for school. And that's opened up, the visibility into the school-based stuff is quite new for parents. And that changes the conversation, I think relevant for some of our work around um, education and education technology. On the screen time side, you usually don't use the term screen time to describe education. So that itself has sort of complicated the dialogue about it. But I think parents, for the first time, fairly universally have the experience of having to rely on digital media as their primary source of social and emotional support. And I think that just like we, you know, as we talk to educators about technology, we really push for that experiential thing, right? I can say to parents, you know, just remember when your friends were really important and you really wanted to see them and remember that emotional connection and the importance of what that was like. And that's happening in social media now. And you can say that, but now parents experienced it. 
And so it's a little bit harder for them to pass judgment on the fact that their kids might be on social media or they might be on gaming platforms. And then they see the fact that, you know, especially gaming, which is hugely stigmatized, that's really the playground. And I think they maybe understood it intellectually, but realizing that, you know, whether it's Roblox or Minecraft or Fortnite, the gamers are actually doing fine socially under COVID, as long as their parents aren't getting crazy about the screen time because they have a place to hang out and be connected and have a good time. And, you know, there's research that's come out during COVID that's really underlined the fact that, you know, the these kids who have already had gaming at the center of their social lives have transitioned quite comfortably. Now, I think it's been harder for kids who have athletics or, you know, performance or other kinds of interests. It's been much harder. But I do think that for the parents with, you know, kids who are gamers, there's a new recognition that, you know, those social relationships, they're not all bad just because they're happening through digital games. And I think recognizing, too, that social media may be performing a function that is actually positive and essential for young people. I think that realization has definitely percolated in a way that wasn't around before COVID. Yeah. I had I had an interesting experience this past weekend with my son, who is a, a, a serious uh, Fortnite fan and gamer. And um, he... We had that moment where uh, he's now he's now old enough that he's getting an allowance uh, for some chores he does around the house, and we were out and and I did one of those. Um, we were doing one of those uh, things where you you know you like bet bet your kid like I'll bet you you can't eat you know three of these things you know I'll I'll uh, add a dollar to your allowance kind of thing, and um, we were, we were out and about and he bet me V bucks to do something um he you know so he said like i'll bet you 2800 v bucks you can't uh fill in the blank and i thought in that moment i thought to myself oh my goodness like how interesting is that that um he gets a cash allowance so he but but the currency he'd rather deal with me in our v bucks in Fortnite. like he knows how he's he's budgeting in the back of his head no doubt um in a different way using v bucks than he is with with his own allowance which he knows uh doesn't go very far in town like he goes to the starbucks and he can get a croissant for the for his entire allowance um so anyway uh for me that's certainly consistent with me that's the experience i'm having is uh, my son is of the age where um, he is not having the setbacks in terms of his social life um, that my daughters are, uh, who are just not, you know, they're they're doing things like Roblox, but they're also um, not reading at a level where um, they're chatting with friends and, and doing those kinds of things. So um, it's a really interesting moment right now. And um, I have just been encouraging as much as I can friends and friends. Uh, folks who also have kids in you know who are are in game environments uh for part of their day um to pay attention you know to 
go down and do the laundry in the basement while they're playing games and just listen and hear some of what's going on because um, it really is a, kind of a fascinating uh, moment right now. Um, anything anything you wanted to say on the screen time uh, that, that I didn't ask you but should have? I don't think so. I think that's sort of my one point that I just keep making over and over is just pause. Yeah. Don't judge. Yep. You know, take a moment to be curious and appreciative of what they're doing online. Yep. And it will look quite different. One of the things I wanted to take the opportunity to talk to you about is something that I don't I don't know that a lot of people who follow your work necessarily know about you. Um, so I didn't know previously about uh, your um, your growing up and sort of moving back and forth between schools in the U.S. and schools in Japan and. Um, one thing I wanted to ask more about is the work you're doing around third cultures. If I can, I'm using a term I've heard you use um, in other places and partnerships to help designers of learning technology better understand cultures that aren't theirs natively. So I, I want to ask about your upbringing um, and sort of move and, and move from there. So um, I'm curious to what extent you think uh your your background and your experience as a young person drew you to this work in thinking about third cultures and thinking about how you can apply some of what you know as a native non-native um to what we're experiencing now in folks who are trying to develop environments that have culture to them who also are not of the culture of those who are using it that sounded like complicated to anyone else, but I'm betting you follow. You're following. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in a bicultural context between Japan and the U.S. and spent various parts of my childhood in both countries and were raised by, you know, Japanese parents. So I've always been a little bit uncomfortable in my skin culturally. Like the only arena where I felt like I fit in cult culturally was the expat community in Tokyo when I was in middle school and high school and the American and international schools there. And I think that really led to my uh, disciplinary choice to specialize in cultural anthropology. So I think that, uh, you know, I work in interdisciplinary contexts and across research and educational practice and technology design. And definitely, I feel like I'm kind of, I think of myself as a polymath where my disciplinary training is cultural pattern recognition and translation. You know, that's what we get trained in as cultural anthropologists to sort of be able to see the underlying assumptions, cultural assumptions beyond, behind how people are thinking and speaking, mm -hmm. and then to sort of do work to dismantle them with more or less success. So you know, we were having a conversation about screen time and the differences between grown-up and kids' perception. And what would it look like if grown-ups brought their own self-value of their screen-based technologies to their kids? You know, what would that look like? So that's sort of the underlying kind of toolkit that I bring to the work. And I think I got attracted to new technology and to youth culture because they were sort of within the same 
you know, broad cultural context of U.S. and Japan. I've done research in both settings, but new technology and particularly youth adoption of new technology was opening up this cultural rupture where there was a lot of sort of fear and misunderstanding between grown-ups who did not grow up with the same technology and young people who were adopting it in ways that felt very foreign and strange and scary to grown-ups. And it was just this little niche that I found of a kind of um, interpretation and translation work that I think there are huge costs to not bridging that divide because the um, we, we fail to truly harness the positive dimensions of young people's engagement with technology if we have our grown-up cultural blinders on. Uh, and the same goes for diverse young people, communities adopting technology uh, in different ways. You know, more and more of my work has looked not just at youth as sort of a oppressed minority in the culture, but also the intersectionality between age-based oppression and other forms of oppression, whether it's, uh, you know, racial or uh, have to do with um, other kinds of intersectional identities like disability or sexual orientation. And that's where, you know, I think technology can be doubly stigmatizing if it's both associated with uh, kind of undervalued or stigmatized identity and it's something new and scary for the dominant culture. Mm. Tell me a little bit about the work you're doing with um, designers of technology and how does what you just described um, sort of uh, transfer onto into that world? I think the earliest and simplest kind of cultural assumption or barrier that I tried to take on with my work is the one between education and entertainment. So when you look at technology development for young people, for children, it gets siloed into these two worlds. And, you know, there's educational technology, and then there's all the stuff kids do for fun. And then people assume that it's only the stuff that's explicitly educational where learning is happening. Mm. So, you know, my dissertation work was actually on uh, that first blossoming of what we called edutainment in the 80s, those CD-ROMs of like Magic School Bus and Reader Rabbit and all those mm -hmm. where, you know, designers were trying to meld education and entertainment. And that battle has never really gone away. Like people trying to find things that are both entertaining and um, educational, but as a genre in the market, it just keeps failing because our institutions are organized in different ways and the business models and the distribution. And so my um, dissertation was really looking at culturally how those things have been separated and then institutionally and business-wise how those have been sort of ossified into these you know, the distinction between the education and entertainment markets and things like that. So I think that is one of the most sort of damaging assumptions. So you talk to Google and I talk to my colleagues at Google search and I say, you know, you're tinkering with the biggest educational platform on the planet right mm -hmm. now, but they don't see themselves as in the business of education. Right. 
And then in today's day and age, you can't pretend that YouTube isn't a, an educational technology. And yet we pretend that it is or that Roblox isn't an educational platform. They have a little bit more awareness that they are because it's explicitly designed for children. But I think that is one of the things that, you know, the bigger battle in terms of culture and assumptions that I've been trying to get people to understand. And as the technology, whether it's, you know, the digital networks or interactive and game-based technologies have grown in prominence, that fiction that the learning is what happens within a formal educational context, it's just crumbled, mm. you know, in terms of young people's actual lives. So pretending that you can you know, do education within the four walls of the school. I mean, that is the other assumption that COVID has really, really challenged because we saw how unprepared schools were for thinking about education as a distributed and networked enterprise. The institutions of schooling just broke under this uh, model, even though we've known, you know, it, it flies in the, you know, face of reason if you don't recognize that learning is happening at home and if you can't connect kids' experiences with their peers, with their families, with their communities to schooling, it's irrelevant and not helpful. And that's been the argument we've been trying to make with the connected learning model. But it's a very difficult argument to make and to get designers to really think, technology developers and designers to think about what are they doing that actually connects kids' everyday life worlds, peer cultures, interests to educational and achievement pathways? That mm. that is a central design problem. You know, facts and knowledge and content is cheap and abundant now. Yeah. And yet our learning institutions have been optimized towards content delivery and skills training when it should be optimized towards matchmaking, interest discovery, connectivity, um, support of kids' interests and inquiry. And that that has not happened because the ways that the genres of education and entertainment have been separated from one another. Yeah. I just, for, um, for those who are interested in the, the kind of um, research that, uh, you know, is striking evidence toward that conclusion. Um, you know, in case there are those who need to, con you know, need more evidence uh, of to debunk the myth that um, learning happens only in the the sort of in, uh, industrial K twelve um, structure. I just read a, a study from uh, out of Oklahoma where they did. Um, uh, a, a big study across schools that went down to four days a week. Um, and there was, I will link to it in the show notes just so that, that people can take a look if you're interested. But um, there was no uh, difference in academic achievement between a, a four-day and a five-day uh, school week. Um, and the rest of it was also about what it saved in terms of operational cost and those kinds of things. Um, and And... I, my uh, pointing to that kind of thing, and to to um, I can probably speak for both of us, but um, 
is in no way a diminishment of the importance and role of schools and teachers and and uh, more so what uh, what can what's constraining some of the innovation and and thinking about uh, where and how um, learning happens and um, kind of moving us moving us forward. One of the questions that has actually been on my mind since the last time we talked is very relevant to what you just said, I think, which is I've been thinking a lot about, you know, that I've been really interested in um, TikTok lately and um, mm-hmm. and I'm working on some a, a series of episodes to sort of explore what's possible in the context of TikTok. And, and one of the things we've talked about is the algorithm, right? And I I wonder the extent to which um, you would agree or disagree with the sentiment that the difference between a learning technology and a te- uh, and a non-learning technology, whatever the opposite is, boils down to how the algorithm, uh, the sort of choices in the design of the algorithm are made. I think that is a huge factor, right, in what I don't think it necessarily distinguishes whether it's a learning technology or not, but what kind of learning Mm. it's promoting, right? So I tend to think of learning as ubiquitous. It's just only certain forms of learning are tied to academic and civic and career outcomes, which is how we usually define educational forms of learning. Um, So I think that's, it's a huge influence. Now, the caveat there is that the user and the communities can also hack the influence of the algorithm Mm -hmm. too, right? So it's not, it's a hugely influential, maybe the one of the most influential components of this soup that defines engagement. Yeah. Can can you give an example where where users might hack the algorithm, not necessarily in TikTok, but but in any context? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, there's sort of a range of flexibility that platforms have. And, you know, we run a lot of our programs in Minecraft because precisely because of the ability to um, build homegrown Minecraft servers and communities. And it was, Minecraft was very unlike prior MMOs in that way. Like you, you don't have to go to the WoW server with all their rules and, you know, value system. You can start your own Minecraft community. So, you know, of course, you know, platforms vary, though, on their flexibility and their openness to user-driven appropriation and innovation. But Minecraft's definitely on one end of the spectrum. Uh, And then I think that a lot of, you know, what educators have been doing in the name of digital citizenship and other things are examples of that and saying, look, you know, these platforms are going to push you towards engagement, towards clicking on things, towards you know, algorithms that reward popularity versus facts and um, depth of thought, for example. And you as a user need to be intentional Mm. about how you engage. And then there's like a whole third party industry of sort of rescue time and other apps that help you manage how you um, use your scarce attentional resources. So those are also examples where 
we um, learn to drive at the speed limit. Um, it's not embedded in the car. So I think there's also a host of sort of social innovations around use that have been, you know, developing in tandem with the technologies pushing us in a certain direction. Mm. Interesting. Um, one of the things you made me realize about my about my questions around TikTok is that I need to talk to somebody about the TikTok algorithm. And you were the first to point out, like, that's pretty much like the most uh, proprietary item in the world at the moment. So um, if anybody has any secrets uh, they're willing to share about the TikTok algorithm, I'm, I'm looking. Um, so I want to I wanna fast forward a little bit to your work with Research Practice Partnership and some of what you've been up to lately. Um, can you talk a little bit about the origin of RPP and whether there are ways so so i, I want to sort of set um a sense for people of uh the value of rpp um because i think i i worry that at the point where it's reaching folks who aren't practicing it at a at a deep level it it sort of becomes diluted as like you know a a collab um you know uh, and any old so so i'm interested in getting to sort of the features of rpp but can you talk a little bit about the origins of rpp and um let's start there yeah so i guess i'll start by saying i am not so much an expert of rpps and that particular framework and branding for lack of a better word but i've been immersed in this kind of long stream of efforts to try to get educational researchers more accountable to practice and social impact. Um, and, you know, I really would defer to folks like Bill Penuel and Cynthia Coburn, and then even before that, Luis Gomez and Tony Brick, who have been, you know, thinking over many, many years now of how. Um, to structure those relationships in ways that are productive and that are really addressing this longstanding problem in educational research is, you know, the power hierarchy between research and educational practice and also the lack of kind of norms and practices and institutional incentives for researchers to do things that truly serve the needs of educators and educational institutions. So I think of RPPs as sort of a word a term that has recently become more widespread and popular to describe that very long-standing sort of struggle within the field. And I think it's great that it's become, you know, Bill and Cynthia and, you know, others have, you know, with a lot of support from foundations and other partners have managed to make it a thing that people that's being talked about and considered and, um, kind of influencing how funding happens. And so I think it's it's very productive in that way, but I'm far from an expert of around that particular formula, which I think of a certain group of people who have primarily, you know, the canonical cases are more around um, educational institutions, whether that's schools, community colleges, libraries, museums, partnering with educational researchers. And 
Um, you know, I've observed that field and have a huge appreciation for it. It tends not to be what I do mm -hmm. because I tend to do work that is sort of outside of formal educational institutions or institutions who recognize themselves as educational institutions. Yeah. So a lot of the work, you know, in my own practice, I've worked with gaming companies and, you know, social media platforms and um, so, which I also think is a version of RPP, it's just not the canonical version of what people think of and how the, you know, specific tools and toolkits. Now, we've done work with libraries and, you know, other institutions, so it's not that I haven't been part of the movement at all, um, but I would definitely not consider myself like a central defining character. Um, in a lot of ways, I backed into it because uh, there's this thing called the MacArthur Research Networks that have been going for quite some time, and they are in some ways a version of an RPP, some of them, mm -hmm. at least ours for digital media and learning. We didn't have that word when we started now, like 13, 14 years ago. Research networks, MacArthur Research Networks had been going for a long time, and the basic model is you fund a group of like eight to a dozen scholars who are interdisciplinary, force them to meet four times a year around a shared problem and then see what happens. Like it's a very kind of interesting and innovative model and our research network, because it was part of this broader initiative that did include innovators and in, um, practice and design was an RPP in the sense that we had, you know, Katie Salen who was starting a new school, Nicole Pinkard who was, um, running the Digital Youth Network. We had other partners like Elise Ayman Adal at the National Writing Project. So it was, in a way, an RPP, hmm. but it's not the canonical version of the RPP. Right. Um, and that's how, and Bill was part of my network. So I learned so much from Bill about this. I mean, he's really the one who educated me on these issues. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope all of um, the folks that you just men mentioned, uh, Cynthia Coburn and Bill Penuel, and uh, I will link to all of their work in the show notes. And um, and uh, hopefully one day we'll we'll get to talk to them more about um, some of the sort of what, what you're calling the canonical um, work in research practice partnerships. But but I do want to ask you about um, just to, to draw out maybe some of the features of research practice partnership, because this is a, um, it is a specific methodology, right? Mm -hmm. um, what are the features that you feel like you've been able to transfer onto some of those projects you're describing with game companies and libraries and, and these other contexts? Yeah, I, I feel like the most important thing, at least for me, that I've taken from the RPP movement is to get researchers to think about their work as in the service of practice and social impact rather than in the service of the theory building in their field and their own academic reputations. And not only to think about it, but actually give, you know, guidelines, tools, models for how to do that. Um, this idea of research that's less extractive, that's actually serving young people, communities, educational institutions. No educational researcher would say that's not what they want to do. But then you look at what we do as academic researchers day to day and how the incentive structures work, 
and so on. And you realize that a lot of it is about, you know, building our reputations in the field, being smarter than others. And, you know, it's important. Science is important, too. But it's not the issues that motivate a teacher or a librarian every day, Hmm. or a kid for that matter. So I think that mindset is the thing that is most important. And just by way of context, I've never had a traditional faculty position. So I've always been within universities, but have been externally funded by uh, philanthropists and grants and fellowships and so on. So in a way, again, that it's the third culture idea, but I'm of the academy, but not of the academy Mm -hmm. in the sense that my incentive structure has been defined by a lot of the philanthropists who have funded my work. And philanthropists are the ones who have been really one of the front lines of pushing RPPs because philanthropists want to see the institutions change, mm. right? That's their the purpose of their a lot of their grant making. And so their vision is very aligned with the RPP vision and trying to get academics out of their um, cycles. You know, little circuit of talking to academics and only being accountable to other academics. And um, I'm one of those rare kind of established researchers who has never had a tenure track position. I don't publish in peer reviewed academic journals. My whole life is focused on supporting interdisciplinary and research practice collaborations like that is my actual job i'm not doing it on the fumes of needing to get tenure advising phd students teaching classes doing committee work the day jobs of academics is it's a tough job Mm -hmm. and trying to do this kind of partnership work on top of it it really is a lot to ask of people it's a heavy lift and it has to be incentivized by funding Um, One thing I actually don't love about the term, although it's definitely not the intention of the term, is it kind of implies that researchers don't have practice. And in fact, one of the hardest barriers for achieving research practice partnerships is the everyday practice of academic researchers. Mm -hmm. Like our day-to-day lives are structured by the business model of the university, by the incentive structures of academic tenure, and all of these things, which don't align to RPPs, and no RPP is going to be successful unless you can get an alignment of goals and interests. And there's sort of this, the elephant in the room is that our academic incentive structures do not align. Um, So you're sort of leaving it to external funding and the goodwill of researchers um, to make them successful. And I think that's that is quite frankly a heavy lift. I mean, it's just as heavy a lift as asking educators to care about research. Yeah. Is there um, is there a, a one project that for you fits the sort of ideals of research practice partnership that you're working on now that you're most excited about? Yeah, so there's a project. We have a a couple uh, kind of, we have two networks of RPPs right now at the Connected Learning Lab that are both really exciting. One is around um, uh, youth well-being and digital technologies and is a lot about partnering with clinicians and 
app developers and things like that. And that's super interesting because well-being is a new arena for me and I'm a restless person, so I like doing new things. Um, but there's the other network, which is being funded by the Gates Foundation as part of their Equitable Futures Initiative, and that's um, around workforce equity and career identity. Um, what I love about that is they, they're supporting us and Vera Michaelcheck and June Ahn have really been leading this effort and I've been sort of an appreciative um, cheerleader uh, is that we, were, we structured it around uh, postdoctoral fellowships uh, for emerging scholars that have lived experience and community connections to the communities that the work is designed to serve. And so this is where, you know, my pushing on this issue of the identity and practice of the researchers when we think of research practice partnerships is so essential, right? So we need to raise a cohort of researchers who see themselves and their purpose as tied to the kinds of social impact, equity, and educational goals that we're seeking to achieve. Mm. And a lot of us old people who have been around for a while. And, you know, I'm very committed to, you know, equity work in U.S. communities and helping youth of color, but that's not my lived experience. Like, I'm a Japanese person who, like, came over here when I was, you know, for college. And, you yeah. know, I, it, I don't, I'm not connected to the communities that we're trying to serve with this initiative, which is really designed around Black, Latinx, and low-income youth um, in the U.S., and so I, I'm really excited about building an RPP network that is centered on the communities that we are seeking to serve mm. from the ground up. So it's going to be, it's a set of networks where we're funding um, young scholars of color who are working with youth researchers in the community-based organizations that they're studying. So it's a youth participatory action research model in partnership with community based organizations. And that to me is really exciting because you're actually kind of working all the way down into the practice of research, right? It's not like researchers were just life of the mind and you know our bodies and everyday practices don't matter. It does matter. Our backgrounds, our lived experiences, you know, what we <laughs> live, eat and breathe and worry about every day it matters a lot. So I think at, especially at this phase in my career, I don't need to like produce some grand new theory. I, I kind of have written enough books. Like it's really exciting to me though, to support emerging scholars of color who are really already committed to these goals and are committed to um, dedicating to their career to this kind of work and figuring out how we can build structures to support them yeah. and um, continue the work because they, they're they already committed to transforming communities. And that to me is exciting. It's, um, it's really, it, it's inspiring to hear you talk about, um, to, to hear you prioritize that way. Um, you know, it, uh, that just at this at this point, what's important to you um, feels feels like 
just what we would hope uh, senior senior folks in senior research roles would would be prioritizing right now and and it brings a different light to why you're feeling like the conversation around RPP um, is important the way it is I don't I, I'm watching time and I don't want to miss an opportunity to talk about connected camps and just sort of what you're getting from that experience right that and right now um, tell me about connected camps and and I will uh, link to it in the show notes and and uh, give people uh, a better sense of what's going on through some of the the I know you've written a bit about it and and we'll post mm-hmm. some of that stuff as well yeah uh, so connected camps has been my passion project for now almost seven years and uh, I've been working with Katie Salen and uh, Tara Brown who was very active in the maker movement was one of our early partners and co-founders, but it really is an effort to put connected learning into practice, but in a way that is, we hope, scalable and sustainable. So this was coming off of doing a lot of work that was grant-funded, that people were doing really great innovative work, but was dependent on this constant influx of philanthropic dollars. And uh, you know, I think all of us in the nonprofit space have lived through these sort of boom and bust kind of cycles when funders um, are interested in something and then, you know, the field moves to something new. And, you know, I was, I'm blessed to have friends and colleagues in the for-profit sector and folks who are thinking about public-private hybrid models and partnerships. And so it was really an effort to figure out whether we could um, take what I think of as one of the most exciting arenas for connected learning, which is these digital game-based platforms like Minecraft and Roblox, bring in a near-peer mentorship model, so interest-driven, peer-driven learning through digital platforms that are centered around making and project-based learning. That's sort of what Katie and I have been working on for years in the R&D space. Like, what is a platform that we could build that is scalable? Hmm. Um, And what it looks like concretely is that we um, hire college kids who are already game enthusiasts or digital makers, and we train them how to teach younger kids. So it's a near-peer mentorship model. Uh, parents don't want to spend their entire day researching the latest Minecraft patch and, you know, build. But these, <laughs> translating these translating V bucks currency. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but these college kids do. Like yeah. they're Minecraft nerds, and it's we know from a learning perspective. Like that's an incredible thing, right? For a 12-year-old to have an 18-year-old who's like super excited about the same thing and actually going to spend time showing her how to make a TNT cannon or something like that is like magic from a connected learning perspective. So, but you know, most 18 year olds don't want to spend their Saturday afternoon teaching a 13 year old how to make a TNT cannon. So how can we incentivize and build a structure, you know, where parents are paying for the mentorship, we're training these kids and prof- giving them professional development, giving them their often their first paid experiences, um, recruiting to be um, focused on equity goals of gender equity and um, hiring uh, youth of color 
uh, which is uh, encouragement to get them sort of on their way in a STEM pathway mm. um, based on an identity, which is very asset-based, centered on what they know and can uniquely contribute. Um, also giving, you know, a lot of middle class and sort of upper income kids an experience of learning STEM from a diverse range of uh young adults, you know, so there's a lot of aspects of the model that are kind of working together. And with COVID, you know, we had been puttering along, like our little corner of the inner, like the kid-friendly internet is like this little space where I'd been jumping up and down all by myself (laughs) with Katie for, you know, 12 years. And then suddenly the entire world invaded our corner of the internet, like overnight in March of 2020. And um, yeah, we grew from a staff of about five with 20 counselors to a staff of 30 with about 120 counselors in one quarter. Wow. We served 20,000 kids last year. Um, and, you know, we, I think, are on our way to knock on wood, self-sustaining. We're also, um, you know, coaching kids in esports in a hundred schools and we have sort of our public, you know, institution free programs. Um, there's still a lot of things we have to work out and it's super scary because we're growing, but you know, there are billions of dollars of investment that have gone into for profit versions of what we're doing. Right. Um, so suddenly, you know, there was we went from like almost no competition to suddenly being in a super overheated competitive market because of COVID. So it's interesting times, but, you know, I, I think it's essential that nonprofits and social impact organizations are competing in the marketplace because if we don't, the for-profits will be the only thing that's available. And during COVID, you know, schools are struggling, um, and stretch thin, and the ed tech direct to family investments have just skyrocketed. So the equity gap is just mm-hmm. it's accelerated so much. And um, I think it's essential that we have nonprofits and public investment in this space. Here, here. I think it's a great place for us to end this conversation, though. I really hope that we can do it again soon. And I get so much out of these conversations. Um, I'm really grateful for the time. Amy. Great. Thanks so much, Mark. Bye. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.